You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by William Rosenau, who's a senior policy historian at CNA, a nonprofit research and analysis organization located in Arlington, Virginia. He's an expert on the United States international military advisory roles and missions, international police training, terrorist innovation, and political warfare. Some of his recent research has examined threats, governance, and diplomacy in Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Balkans, East Africa, and Cuba. Prior to joining CNA, Bill was a political scientist at the RAND Corporation, a senior policy advisor in the Office of the Coordinator of Counterterrorism in the Department of State, and an adjunct professor in the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University. At Harvard University, he was a teaching fellow in the Department of History and a research coordinator for the National Security Program at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. On Capitol Hill... He was a legislative assistant for defense and foreign policy in the U.S. Senate. In the Department of Defense, he served as a professional staff member at the Commission on Roles and Missions of the Armed Forces and a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. His books include Acknowledging Limits, Police Advisors and Counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, Internal Security Assistance to South Vietnam, Insurgency, Subversion, and Public Order, and now, Tonight We Bomb the U.S. Capitol. The explosive story of M19, America's first female terrorist group. A lot going on there, but welcome, Bill. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Vince, it's great to be here. Thanks very much. So this new book, which which will come out literally, if you're listening to this the day this podcast posts, uh, it's today. So this is as new as it gets, right, brand new book. And it's an extraordinary story. And it's an amazing story that I thought I knew a lot about American civil rights movements. I thought I knew a lot about the militarization of American civil rights movements. I thought I knew a lot about terrorism history, but this was brand new to me. And that's fascinating finding stories that you just haven't seen before. And, but this is a story from the seventies and the eighties. It's not a story that was classified. It's not like all of a sudden these documents come out for the very first time. These were events that were on the front page of the Washington post. So why in the world did it take now three plus decades to write a book about this terrorist organization that was very public 
during a lot of people's lives. I think uh, there are probably a couple of reasons for that. And um, I agree, it's, it, it, it seems strange on the surface that um, something that was so public at the time and certainly wasn't classified um, has taken this long to be, to be looked at. But I think what we're looking at here, it, it was kind of the tail end of, of a whole cycle of terrorism that um, began in the early 1970s. Um, I think people had seen, you know, the, the Weather Underground, of, of course, was, was very prominent in the 1970s, but there were lots of other groups that were operating. I think people by this point sort of maybe had a little bit of terrorism fatigue. Um, they were seen as uh, not particularly threatening. Um, they were seen as kind of, kind of dead-enders, and, and even by people on the extreme left, they were seen really as a bunch of... Um, people who hadn't realized that the the circus had left town, right. so they, I think they were sort of dismissed as as just relics, um, just re relics from you know our own recent past. Um, but what you know, for me anyway, there's there's that that bit of the story, but also the fact that it was organized and led by women, uh, which you know obviously has lots of resonance. Um, and I think um, it took it took um, a long time. I think for us, uh, for we historians, um, if I may <laughs> call myself that, um, I am a historian by training. Um, it took a long time for historians, I think, to really come to appreciate, and that's historians of the United States, to realize how kind of deeply ingrained terrorism was in our own fabric and. I think we as Americans tend to view terrorism as very episodic. Uh, it happens. It's it's like a uh, you know force majeure. It's a it, it's an act of, of of nature almost, and then it disappears. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is the case. This was the case here, where yeah, that's something that happened in the past. I, I we we don't really need to know about that. And finally, I think there's there's a sense that. Um, at least among many terrorism experts, but I think among you know regular citizens, that there's 9/11, and there's everything before it, and there's everything after it. But that's the dividing line. Right. So the stuff that came before, really, it was was completely different. And we have, as you know, there's there, there was a sort of subfield in terrorism studies um, in the early 19 uh, early part of the century. I think there was a sense that, yeah, if it wasn't jihadist terrorism, it wasn't really terrorism. And there were plenty of scholars who talked about, um, you know, the so-called new terrorism, the apocalyptic terrorists, um, even going back to Om Shinrikyo and the poison gas attack in 1995. But a sense that, you know, all this stuff that happened before, yeah, it really doesn't have much to tell us. We're dealing with right. these these jihadist Ideologues. And well, so the, yeah, even Tim McVeigh became kind of quaint. Exactly. You know, I mean, only a couple of years later. I mean, that was mid '90s. Yeah. And people had forgotten about it. And how often do we, uh, do people, I don't know, recall uh, the the day? You know, we we don't go through an annual thing where we reflect on what happened in Oklahoma City. Um, that's that's completely forgotten. And in fact, there was a fascinating. Uh, chapter of an edited volume, um, his name is escapes, escapes me at the moment, but an FBI special agent wrote it, uh, and he, he pointed out that 
the number of dissertations on violent right-wing extremism in the United States after uh, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, he said there were just a handful. That even, you know, even that wasn't enough to get the terrorism people interested in it. So I think that's why it's taken it's taken so long. So why did you decide to, to buck the trend and say, okay, 20, well, 2020 is when the book comes out. So I was 2018 or 2017 <laughs> or whatever it was when you decided to hunker down and write this, that it was time for this book. There were a couple of things. I mean, part of it, I would say, was um, personal in the sense that I, w- I was at Columbia as an undergraduate in the, in the late 1970s. And... That was a period where these a lot of the Weather Underground people surfaced, and that was big news in New York, and a lot of them had been living uh, on the Upper West Side, you know, near Columbia, and so that sort of piqued my interest. You know, was I standing online at Chalk Full of Nuts with you know a member of the Weather Underground who'd been been in hiding? So these the, the, these uh, guys and gals uh, surfaced, and so that. That kind of piqued my interest and got me interested in um, in terrorism and 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 uh, violent extremism in, in a lot of ways. And then I later, much later, I when I was working at Rand, doing uh, researching terrorism, um, I, I periodically come across references to this group, um, May Nineteenth Communist Organization, which you know is sort of a clunky. Kind of bizarre name. What the hell is May nineteenth? Why, why is it called that? Well, it turns out May nineteenth is the um, birthday of two of the uh, heroes of this group, um, Malcolm X and Ho Chi Minh. Okay. Um, kept coming across these references, and but it would sort of peter out, and it it just kind of gnawed at me, and. Um, then I began filing filing uh, FOIA requests, and uh, I must say, I know um, many of us, probably you, Vince, you've had experience with FOIA. Yes, it sadly. Be, yes, sadly. Uh, the FBI was remarkably uh, responsive, and I have to give a shout out to them uh, for this. They, they they were really good, and they they helped me narrow my uh, requests. They would really identify uh, groups of documents, and were really extremely helpful. So that was was sort of the beginning of the process. And I got thousands of pages of um, you know, FBI files uh, on the group and the investigation. Sadly, that only kind of brings you to one side and one direction <laughs> of the story. And I, 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 I kind of, you chuckle in the book where you mentioned they have a paragraph in the beginning where you talk about the fact that no members were willing to talk to you about this. I mean, it, you, you age yourself, so I won't even, I don't have to do it. A, a middle-aged white guy writing about an almost, a majority lesbian, all women's, almost all women-led terrorist organization. It's no surprise, especially you work for the exact establishment that these people fought against for so long. Essentially, the male defense analysts, government-funded think tank. You're probably the antithesis of everything they stood for. So there really isn't that other perspective. Is that something that you're you're a little, uh, you know, sad about that not being able to get some of the 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 people who were there actually doing this, like their side of the story? Yeah, and you know, I used um, I don't know when when it, I want to be be a, a reporter, I I use kind of reporter's techniques, and 
Um, you know, this is your chance to tell your side of the story, and uh, this has never been told before, and um, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to be absolutely fair. I think, um, it, and that, that didn't, they didn't take the bait. <laughs> and as you suggested, I think part of it was that I um, kind of checked all the wrong boxes. Yeah, like I read your, literally every sentence of your bio is like, I hate him because of that. I hate him because of that. I hate him because of that. That's right. And so I tried all different things. I mean, letters, using third parties, um, reaching out to people who knew people who knew them. And yeah, it, it would have been, I, I would have enjoyed probably or been interested in getting their perspective and talking to them. But I mean, they have, give, they have given interviews before and... All the, the the ones that I've read, um, they're always on message. They so this is interviews going back into the into the eighties after most of them have been, been arrested. You know, it was you know very kind of propagandistic. Uh, you know, hectoring long sentences, and we were talking about this before the before the show, the Bill Ayers book, um, which Fugitive Days. Mm-hmm. This isn't a shout out to Bill Ayers, but that's his book. You know, you, I read that thing carefully, and I kind of mined it for operational details, and they were very, very scant. Yeah. And terrorists, that's a, pro- a problem with a lot of, like, terrorist memoirs and interviews. Uh, they don't get into the stuff that I was really interested in. Like, what was it like underground? Well, how did you support yourself? Where? So I think... Um, if, even if they had agreed, one or more had agreed to talk to me, I think I would have gotten a lot of slogans. Right. I'm not sure whether, I mean, I'm sure I would have picked up uh, nice details. Uh, it probably would have added to the book. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I think I got as close to them as um, anybody on the outside has, right. other than perhaps the FBI. I mean, those slogans would have been out of date in the 70s and the 80s, and yeah. definitely in 2019. I mean, the, the idea of just, you know, well, maybe they're coming back into to fashion and style now where there's slogans about anti-imperialism and other things. But um, that, that interesting segue for me is because I really appreciate, and I think your, the readers will really appreciate, that you set the context for the time because so it's so easy to kind of gloss over the 1960s is kind of this monolithic decade where everyone is feeling the same way and, and just not understanding the transition that, you know, from the mid-1950s to the early 1960s, a kind of peaceful protest and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Rosa Parks to MLK and all that. And that dramatic shift that started taking place in the mid-1960s when you get to like Malcolm X, but when you get to SNCC, even though it's nonviolent in the middle that N stands for that Stokely Carmichael now Kwame Ture goes from somewhat nonviolent protest to black power and then they get the Black Panther movement and of course go from SDS which was a touchy-feely you know singing guitar folk songs on the quad to the weathermen and that transition is something that a lot of people don't quite understand and I think you do a really good job in laying that out here you know for the generation like mine who weren't, wasn't alive, I and mean, you, you you weren't alive. You even said yourself that you were an undergrad at, when these guys are coming out. Right. And so very few of us who are still around and kicking remember this context, understand it. And I think there's a great 
kind of part to just not assuming people understand that here in this book because most of the people didn't remain militant into the 70s and the 80s and you have groups that did and I think that's where um, the question I think that you probably had setting out and I'm going to put words in your mouth was what made these groups decide to keep up the fight number one but to go as kind of kinetic as they did to really use a very wonky term and start blowing shit up um, and that to me is really the interesting question that you tackle in this book yeah and you mentioned the civil rights movement um, and Stokely Carmichael interestingly who uh, two of the members of May 19th had been I wouldn't say they were radicalized by Stokely Carmichael but they both talked about uh, the experience of hearing Stokely Carmichael at their college campuses and how that really just set their I, I wouldn't say change their thinking, but really energize them in, in profound ways, just through power of his oratory. Um, and you watch some of his old speeches on, on YouTube, and he's just an incredible, uh, incredibly dynamic, um, just shattering uh, speaker and graduate of Bronx High School of Science, which I found out, interestingly, he's from the Bronx. Um, and there's also the anti-war movement. So there's a sense by 1969 that peaceful protest isn't getting anywhere. We're still in Vietnam. And so there's this burning um, frustration, <laughs> I would call it, among a segment of the anti-war movement. It's like, well, we've done everything we're supposed to do. We, we picketed, we protested peacefully, we did this, we did that. And now it's time to bring the war home. And well, especially in 1970 with that dramatic shift with Kent State and the invasion. Well, Kent State is a response to the invasion of Cambodia. Yeah. You know, where if you wanted to believe Nixon, and of course we didn't, in 1970 didn't know as much about Nixon as we do today. <laughs> if you wanted to believe Nixon, all of a sudden he's lying his teeth off. And, let, you know, no one really at the time is thinking about a strategic withdrawal through a tactical escalation and all the nonsense that comes later on. But the invasion of Cambodia looks as though the government is lying to everyone, and it's where you get Kent State and these other, and that that, as you mentioned in the book in 1971, so the year following that, there were more than 400 terrorist attacks in the United States. It's incredible. Yeah, and that's that's something. If you thought about think today, if there yeah. were 400, that's more than one a day. Yeah, terrorist attacks in the United States, and I guess how the 9/11 prism has shifted things, but that's you know more than one, and these aren't. And as we'll talk about as we move forward, the M19 group, they're not attacking, you know, the Safeway down the street. They're attacking the Washington Navy Yard, the U.S. Capitol, as the title suggests. They're they're attacking FBI offices with bombs. These are things that would be splashed across the front page today, particularly if there's 400 of them in one year. Yeah, it's sort of paradoxical that that you know, back in the early 1970s, you said you know hundreds of of terrorist attacks and. Um, a shout out to uh, Jeffrey Tubin, his magnificent book on Patty Hearst. He he talked about just the sheer number of bombings that it wasn't clear whether they were terrorists or who was actually doing them, but literally thousands uh, in thousands a year in seventy, seventy one, seventy two, and it's 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 strange in a way that that um, you know despite the fact there were so so there, there was so much kinetic action. Um, there wasn't that kind of national freakout 
that um, one would expect today, certainly if 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 if, if that happened. Um, so yeah, it it is it is uh, it's a it's a it's a paradox to me. Um, the other thing, and just to sort of push this a little farther, a lot of this, and I've tried to do this in the book. There, there's an international dimension to this. So you have the Red Army faction. You've got in uh, West, what was then West Germany, um, that really got started when um, a student in uh, somewhere in I can't remember where in West Germany. I think it was it wasn't in Berlin, but was killed during a pro killed by the police during a protest uh, during a visit by the Shah of Iran, and that absolutely set in motion um, a lot of just ex- you know violent extremist activity, but. You had, you had the Red Army faction, you had Axion Direct in France, you had the Red Brigades and many other groups in Italy, and these are all contemporaneous. And one of the things I found, and it's toward the end of the book, so the Red Army faction um, really shared quite a bit in common with May 19th. They were almost exactly the same age, the people. And these were people who even the extreme left in Germany just considered to be absolutely nuts. They were, you know, killing U.S. servicemen. Um, they were, you know, extremely violent, more, more violent than May 19th. But it's a, it's a sort of a generation of 68, as it's, as it's been called. This, this, and again, so um, the Red Army faction is going in through the late 1980s. So they've they've they they're keeping the armed struggle going, and it, again, it's probably a couple of dozen people at right. the time. It's really small, but the, the, these this there's a transnational dimension, and and I came across um, in in looking at the FBI files, there was evidence that the Red Army faction actually visited members visited the United States and went to um, court hearings that. Some of the May nineteenth people were involved in had sessions with the May nineteenth people, and the Red Army faction. Uh, they considered May nineteenth to be um, uh, not uh, sufficiently grounded in the theory and practice of Marxism and Leninism. That their their understanding of the sacred texts was not not quite up to speed. Well, you think the Germans would understand Marx better than other people, yes. but what really sets the course this group apart from all the other ones we've been talking about is that they're women and they're they're white so they're not a repressed minority i mean being woman women they are somewhat repressed minority but they're not hispanic they're not you know african-american they're not um they're they're as middle class in many cases upper middle class well-educated they're all of course all going to berkeley and other places and this i think as you point out in the book gives them a huge advantage over other radicals or terrorists and that they're essentially invisible to police you know you don't if there's some massive attack yeah. taking place the 22 year old white co-ed yeah. is not your first suspect right exactly and w- one of the um, members of the group um, and who I found totally fascinating Marilyn Buck um, whose father was a an Episcopal priest um, he weighed 350 pounds and wore sandals uh, and was a civil rights activist um, in in uh, Austin, Texas. Um, Marilyn wound up uh, as the so-called only white member of the Black Liberation Army 
Black Liberation Army, which is worth a book in and of itself. Um, it's a basically coast-to-coast cop-killing conspiracy. Um, she, she was basically the armorer or quartermaster for the Black Liberation Army. And those, those guys were, you know, serious, serious criminals and terrorists, I mean, killing cops. Here's this nice uh, Episcopal uh, gal from Texas with a lilting accent who's able to operate, you know, above ground in a way the Black Liberation Army members, uh, the other ones, wouldn't be able to. In fact, she would procure um, all kinds of weapons. And she finally got um, arrested when she bought a uh, thousand rounds of ammunition using a fake ID, which became a, which made it a federal crime. And we can talk more about Maryland if, if you'd like uh, later on. But so she, as you said, I mean, she was able to hide in plain sight, able to rate, uh, rent safe houses, able to rent cars, buy guns, do all kinds of stuff that, um, you know, a, a, a black uh, male uh, radical <laughs> in the late early 1970s might not have been able to do. Well, not just buy guns out of the trunk of a car, to go into gun stores yeah. and, and, and buy, you know, be like, I'll take that one and that one and that one. And they're like, oh, that's cute that your, your 19-year-old pretty co-ed is buying all these guns, especially, you know, think of Texas, but... The above board, and that's and the only reason she needed a fake ID was she's buying so much stuff, right? You know that it needed to go under at least more than one name, as it would have been kind of weird under just one. Exactly, and she would buy the stuff in multiple states. I mean, Arizona, not just California, Arizona, a bunch of other different places, and just move uh, move around. I mean, they the uh, San Francisco Police Department had their suspicions about her, and um, the, uh, and the ATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, had their suspicions about her. Um, but, you know, she she was really, uh, again, able to hide in, in, in plain sight. Yeah, I mean, if there's no direct evidence, you know, against her, there's very little she can they can do. And what's interesting to me is that, of course, this group doesn't come out of nowhere. They learn their trade by working with other groups as the above board in many cases or the above ground uh, contingent of some of these organizations. And, and one of the most interesting is the family, is Doc Shakur, as you know, he went by, and the family. And, and, and if Shakur is a familiar name to those out there, there's a reason for it. Not only did that became, become a name a lot of people took, uh, but one of the members of this family um, was, well, there, there are a lot of relatives to Tupac that are part That's of right. this group that the, the M-19 women were part of. Um, that, to me, is interesting because this family, um, they didn't necessarily share the same goals as the M-19 people, but it, it was a kind of a marriage of convenience um, and like sim- kind of symbiosis for both groups. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, you're right, they... they well, ostensibly, they shared certain goals. Um, the family, and particularly Matulu, Doc Shakur, doc, doctor of acupuncture, and stepfather of the uh, eventual uh, hip-hop superstar, Tupac, um, he, uh, he, he talked about, well, we need to raise money for the black liberation struggle. And his one of his big things was the creation of a black 
homeland within the United States in, in what was called the Black Belt in its five southern states. It's called the Republic of New Africa. And so, yeah, we need to raise money for the Republic of New Africa, but we need to buy land and stuff. Um, and we're going to raise money through revolutionary appropriation, namely robbing banks and armored cars. And uh, so, but as the women eventually discovered, or maybe not, didn't probably acknowledge at the time, uh, Doc and, and, and his crew, they were, they were really into drugs. A lot of this money that they were, they were raising, um, you know, was, was going into, into cocaine. Um, but he, he, he was a charismatic guy. He is a charismatic guy. He's, he seemed to have all the right credentials. Here's a guy, not like those weather underground dudes sitting around and and just yakking about the revolution. He was taking up arms. He was, he was willing to kill. Um, and the women, the women wanted to be part of that program. Um, but kind of ironically, uh, they wound up in a similar position that some of them had in the Weather Underground in that the men were calling all the shots. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that, again, you, you make sure you, you, you point out again and again because it needed to be, is that even as liberal, quote-unquote, or as left-wing as these organizations were, or as progressive, they were incredibly massive. I mean, they were, this was a male-oriented society. They were, I mean, some of the Weather Underground stories were horrendous. You know, for some of these people who are supposed to be on the forefront of progressivism, um, they're obnoxious pigs. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in some, this case also, they, they, the women are relegated to doing kind of medial tasks versus being part of the, the vanguard of the struggle. Right. And they, yeah, it's the same kind of deal that Maryland did with the Black Liberation Army. They're, they're renting safe houses. They're renting cars. They're... Um, doing all kinds of procuring and, and helping. And yeah, they, they, it, it was like um, some weird version of, you know, Cold War sex roles in the United States where the women are the helpers to support the men. And um, yeah, it led them into a, uh, a series of crimes that culminated in Brinks, the, the notorious Brinks robbery in upstate New York. Uh, on October 20th, um, 1981, where two police officers were killed. Uh, Brinks guard was, uh, was also killed. Um, and another one was badly wounded. And just in one of those weird sort of ironies, um, this guy who was wounded, um, he was, he was shot with a, with an M16. Uh, so these, the, 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 the people involved with Brinks were, were not fooling around. I mean, mm-hmm. they came in 9mm pistols, um, M16s, uh, some serious firepower. So <clears throat> he stayed with the company. And then years later, on a bright September morning in lower Manhattan, he's picking up $9 million or $14 million in cash in the basement of one of the World Trade Center towers and uh, called in, um, told his boss that he was, the police told him to get out and that's the last that anyone heard of him. So to go from Brinks to right. 9-11 is it's just, I'm not sure if it means much of anything, but it's just one of those um, 
sort of ironies. Right, in oddities in history where yeah. you kind of link the two things together. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. One thing that some people may have heard of, um, perhaps not, was the Puerto Rican militancy. Uh, which still exists to a little degree today, but certainly at the time was much more overt. Um, the FALN, um, Puerto Rican independence movement, um, that uh, certainly didn't pay a lot of attention to the vast majority of people in Puerto Rico who continue to want to be part of the United States and not vote for independence. But these are people that took their militancy to the level you would expect of true kind of freedom fighters, bombings, even interfering in elections, uh, body count very high, um, and yeah. the both the family and M19 got involved uh, with this movement, particularly with one of their uh, very charismatic leaders, Willie Morales, and charismatic because he blew the living bejesus out of himself um, and then went to prison, and then that became one of their really kind of wonderfully exciting missions was to break Willie Morales out of prison. Absolutely, and... I think um, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, this was okay. So obviously, there's in their view, there's all kinds of imperialism going on in different parts of the world. But in in, in the view of the women and a couple of men in May 19th, we had our own colonies, right? Some of those colonies were Indian reservations. Some were what were then called ghettos. But Puerto Rico, in their view, was a straight up colony. And so we have our very own freedom fighters who were part of the United States. And um, that, that was a very, uh, it was a critical cause for them. Um, there's evidence that they may have even supplied the FALN with uh, dynamite. They, some of the women stole, in 1980, stole uh, hundreds of pounds of dynamite from a, a site in, um, in Austin, Texas. And there was definitely sharing going on, but Willie Morales, the FALN's uh, bomb maker in chief, as you said, managed to blow himself up uh, in his, his his little bomb factory in um, in Queens in 1979, and he was thought to be the architect or the guy who um, at least built the bombs at uh, that went off at Francis Tavern in 1975, wounded 60 people, killed four, you know, very. I think we'd call it a terrorist spectacular today. And um, so this, this man was so dedicated, he, he, he was working on a pipe bomb and it went off in his face, blew off part of his face and nine of his fingers. And talking to um, 
some FBI special agents uh, in the course of the book, one of the things that they discovered is they found blood on the knobs of the, the gas stove in this, in this, in this bomb-making factory apartment. And apparently he managed to drag himself, gravely wounded, to the stove and with his mouth turn on the gas in the hopes of filling the apartment with gas. The cops would come. He knew the cops would be there. Maybe a cop would light a cigarette and everyone would go up. So that kind of, I don't know what to call it. Is it fanaticism? Yeah. Is it discipline? Um, and did, but, did, did you say, did, you, did I read? remember reading that the the doctors wanted to try to reattach some of his fingers, but they were being held as evidence. Yes. That was a nice little <laughs> F you to, to Willie by the cops. So like, no, 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 no. That's right. Um, yeah. And he w- was sitting around in Bellevue hospital waiting for his new hands. And, um, the May 19th women, um, some black liberation army veterans and FALN types decide we're going to get him out. And, Interestingly, um, well, perhaps not surprisingly, the FBI didn't want him transferred to this to uh, to this hospital because they 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 saw it as you know in, not secure and it really wasn't terribly secure and guards were sleeping on on the job. But in you know one of their first um, spectacular actions, uh, the women and men uh, sprung him, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. He managed to fashion, uh, make an, sort of improvised rope out of ace bandages. And his lawyer <laughs> had managed to smuggle in some bolt cutters. Using, I guess, his stumps, he was able to cut through this thin wire on the window. He was somehow able to lower himself down. It was on the third or fourth floor of the, the hospital. He fell. An air conditioning unit broke his fall. Um, the women picked him up. Um, somehow he made it. He made it to Mexico, <laughs> and you think, you know, someone in that kind of condition, you know, making it to Mexico, where he lived for a number of years. Well, you think he'd be able to spot someone like that he would too? Think he would not, yeah, stand out a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And he lived for years in Mexico. He was then he was involved in a shootout. One thing led to another. He goes to prison. The U.S. wants him back. The Mexicans say, you know, screw you uh, uh, to us. And uh, he gets to go to Cuba, where he is, he remains to this day. So um, really a uh, spectacular, uh, a spectacular breakout. Well, even more, it's a great segue to even more spectacular breakouts of someone that's also in Cuba. And that's another member of the Shakur family, uh, Asada Shakur. Um, the godmother of Tupac, um, and that was that was even more daring and even more of a um, a splash when it came to publicity for their organization because she was someone who um, hadn't just blown herself up. She was somebody who had killed cops. Um, yes. and this is a, this may be a familiar story to some people because just a couple of years ago, when President Obama went to Cuba, there was talk about her. And getting her back and trying to try her, and and that to me was one, you know, where uh, there's a little more ballsy than trying to break her out of a hospital. She was in prison. Yes. And they broke her out of prison. They they broke her out of prison. Um, it was Doc Shakur, uh, a couple of his guys, and, and 
three or four of the May 19th members. Um, you know, it was a very, very well-conceived operation. They did they had meticulous surveillance, meticulous planning, dry runs. Uh, it was called the Clinton Prison, um, sort of in central New Jersey. Uh, and they were able... <laughs> In that, in, in that more innocent age, you were able to walk into a prison uh, uh, without going through a metal detector. So he was able to, um, using, using his birth name, not Matula Shakur, um, he, had been, he had visited her a bunch of times, and so the, the, the prison staff sort of knew this guy, but was able to smuggle in weapons, gave one to, to um, Asada Shakur, also known as... Uh, Joanne Chesimard, who had, who was serving a life sentence for murdering a New Jersey state trooper. Well, he walks in and hands yeah. her a gun. Yeah. Here you go. Let's break out. They, they, they come and they, they kidnap a couple of the um, prison officers. Um, they ride out in this van. There's a car switch, blah, blah, blah. They speared her off to um, Pittsburgh. There's a big safe house in Pittsburgh. She's in the trunk of the car. Um, then they managed to get somehow, uh, over the next several years, they managed to get her to the Bahamas and where she, she lives for a time and then on to Cuba. And as you said, yes, her, she came up during, the, um, during President Obama's visit to, to, to Cuba. The FBI certainly wants her. Anyone who... Uh, has information about her, uh, might be able to claim the, I think it's up to about $2 million in, in well, the she's, she's the first woman on the most wanted list, the FBI's yeah. most wanted list. Yeah. But at the same time, she has celebrities that are speaking out for her cause. You know, rights activists, Angela Davis, and Common, right. you know, who, who I thought was relatively reasonable until that. But kind of not talking, talking about commutation more than anything else. It's not, obviously they know that she shot a cop. Right, but I think they're kind of putting it in the context of the time, and the you know, the understanding that she's been exiled for long enough. But the, the New Jersey cops don't think that. No, that's for no. sure. And 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 the FBI, uh, and this is true with some of the other um, women, the May nineteenth members who are still at large. <laughs> By the way, the FBI. I mean, I guess there's no, no such thing as a cold case. I mean, they, 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 I mean, they, they may not be actively pursuing her, but you can go online, the FBI website, and uh, find uh, her as well as um, Donna Borup and uh, Betty Ann Duke. Um, Donna Borup has been on the lam since 1982. Uh, Betty Ann Duke has been on the run since 1985. So these could be your neighbors out there, listeners. Yeah. These, the, the nice old lady down the street, <laughs> I guess, would be about 70 right now in that ballpark age-wise. Well, I think uh, uh, Betty Ann was older, so she's getting close to 80. Um, where she's been hiding, if she's even in the United States, uh, she speaks good Spanish, so maybe she's in Mexico. There was speculation uh, a couple of years ago, there were reports that she and Donna Borup were traveling together, kind of Thelma and Louise style, um, and that kind of came to nothing. But um, again, if you're interested in, uh, <laughs> if some of your uh, some of your neighbors, um, you know, are are, uh, are raising your suspicions, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I guess it's possible. They, well, and if Donna or Betty Ann are out there and want to be on Spycast, yeah, send me an email. We'll take care of that. 
So we've talked a little bit about them being parts of other groups. And this is kind of where I want to kind of shift to them being their own organization because they do kind of come out and, and spread their wings to become their, for a year or two, essentially, or two or three, an organization that kind of needs to be taken seriously on its own, that kind of the juxt of what this book is about. Some of them kind of drift off and, and do their own thing, but the inner core, like the committed group, they are become even more committed because of, you know, oh, you go, you know, go do your normal life. I'm going to stay here and fight the good fight. And by 1983, so this is during a lot of our lifetimes that we, you know, we might think about, they're ready to start attacking what they saw as domestic targets that were indicative or symbolic of kind of this U.S. imperialism. And this is, of course, kind of doing the history lesson of when Reagan is in power, when we're invading Grenada, when we're arming the Contras, when we're arming the death squads against the El Salvadorian rebels. Um, I kind of give away my politics by calling them the death squads, not the anti-communist <laughs> liberators against the El Salvador guerrillas. But this was a time when there was a lot of what you could call imperialism. I wouldn't, but what they called imperialism, certainly in Latin America, uh, but also stuff happening in the Middle East and other places as well. One thing they chose to do, and I want to ask you about this, is why do you think they chose the sending a message and not killing? Because that was one thing that was consistent about what they did, is they bombed in the middle of the night, they gave warnings, they made sure they weren't kill. you know, it's not the idea of killing janitors, they weren't killing even the imperialists. When they bomb an FBI office, they're not killing FBI agents, they're bombing it in the middle of the night. Yeah, um, although I, I will say, so a couple of things about that. It's, you're absolutely right. They, they, middle of the night, you know, a warning, usually a few minutes ahead of time, um, you, you know, an apparent uh, effort to avoid, you know, killing, killing people. Although in their first communique, not their first communique, but in the communique they issued after they bombed the Capitol, they discussed how they chose, they chose not to kill senators that night. The implication being, well, maybe we should have or could have. Well, maybe. I mean, that's also something that they're saying, but it's, I mean, they could have killed FBI agents. They could have certainly killed Navy officers. Um, they could have killed senators and others, Republicans they certainly wouldn't have liked. Um, and they decide not to. Do you, do you think that's, there's something there or... Yeah, I mean, I think I think at least you know at at, at the beginning um, that that was definitely the case. They they were interested in you, you know kind of shocking the the, the system, um, in, in in showing the system that they weren't um, invulnerable. But as time went on, and this this is true of I think a lot of terrorist groups actually, as time goes on and as they're in decline, they actually become more dangerous um, and certainly with May 19th toward the end they're, they're talking and I, I read th these uh, internal May 19th documents that were in the court records and I want to I want to talk about the, the court records also if we if we have if we have the time because I think it's important for, for researchers um, they, they're they're writing to each other they're writing these papers and they're saying the time is right for assassination yeah prosecutors cops, um, politicians, 
uh, and they are they are quite explicit, and they are they're certainly they're certainly talking about it amongst themselves. And you also look at um, their weapons. All right, they had a, a bunch of storage sites, so hundreds and hundreds of pounds of dynamite, which really wasn't in good shape. I've had to learn a lot about explosives and things like fire fudge, which sounds pretty hideous, um, in, in the course of writing this book. And so the dynamite was, it was, it was weeping, weeping out um, nitroglycerin. It wasn't well maintained, but detonation cord, blasting caps, and hundreds of weapons. So Uzis, I mean, automatic weapons, pistols with the, with the serial numbers filed off, shotguns, all, every kind of small arm uh, you can imagine. So this, like, what, <laughs> one has to ask, what, what, what are these arsenals for? Right. Right? I mean, that's, it's not like, oh, well, we just do want to do a lot of symbolic bombing and, and, and not hurt anybody. This is, this is, I, I mean, reading the inventories uh, from some of these storage sites, it's really, really incredible. Um, well, they, they did have an in-progress list that I thought was, you know, for anyone local, uh, targets including the Naval Academy, Fort Meade, Aberdeen Proving Grounds, Fort Belvoir, Quantico, the OEOB, which I guess now is the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Um, these are sites that are not only iconic to American foreign policy and national security, but ones that if they had decided to not blow it up at 1030 at night, and decided to put a bomb in the middle of the day could have killed dozens, if not more, you know, because th these are well-traveled areas. Absolutely. And the Eisenhower, I, I'm old enough to call it the OEOB, yeah. um, the Eisenhower building is on the White House grounds. So there, th th this is getting, yeah, maybe it's just symbolic, but it's also getting to the heart of the U.S. government. Um, and, and, and they are... They're nothing if not ambitious. So they're 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 doing lots of surveillance. Um, they're doing stuff like um, reading Aviation Week and space technology to find out about programs and where these systems are being built, weapons, um, helicopters, other things like that. So they 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 had a uh, an extremely ambitious agenda, and they showed really no signs of. Um, of, of flagging or, or, or kind of giving up. Well, this, the scary part was, to me, there are two things. One is that they got much, much better at tradecraft. They were moving around. They were changing names. A lot of counter-surveillance using payphones, and the payphones themselves had code names. So even if there were kind of signals intelligence collection efforts against them, which I'm sure the FBI had phone taps and other things, they would not get any pertinent information from them. So that's one thing that I found that if they had been kind of let the, left to do their own stuff down the road, they would have gotten better and better at that. But even what we talked about before was being women came in handy. They could hide in plain sight. They could just look normal and kind of do day-to-day -day jobs to make things. What was funny is um, after they put the bomb inside the Capitol building, which I'm not giving anything away because that's literally the title of the book, there were the FBI in, talked to a bunch of witnesses around there about like, what did you see suspicious? And the witnesses saw Middle Eastern type males, Hispanic males, Iranian Turkish males, other, you know, it was 
the usual suspects. Right. But it wasn't a at this point a thirty year old woman, you know, walking around the Capitol building with a bag. And even at that point, they were still using their their femininity, their womanhood, maybe even accidentally. You know, to, to go against the stereotype of a terrorist. Right. And you mentioned their, their tradecraft. I mean, one of, one of the things um, were, were disguises. I mean, they, they, were, they were really good at that. They, they, an assortment of wigs, funky, you know, clothing, uh, matronly garb. Uh, they changed their hair color. Um, they, they, were, they were very good at, uh, you know, being neighbors, but not being too friendly, but not doing stuff that's going to, you know, get the neighbors worried. Uh, so they were, they were, as you said, the tradecraft was was good, and and it was probably getting better over time. And it's interesting. One of the um, FBI special agents I interviewed, who had worked on this case, he he talked about them as compared to the Weather Underground, and he thought these women and the couple of men were much better well I think really what you can correct me if I'm wrong in this but what really gets them caught in the end is how good they had gotten that that bomb making and as you know anyone who's watched a law and order or a movie or anything else bomb makers have signatures yep and that's really what allows the FBI to tie together a lot of these bombings and realize that it was one organization they didn't even think that there was an organization out there right. that was doing this like consistently. But eventually, because of the succession of attacks, and I believe there were like five attacks in a year or something like that, like oh, the big ones in 1983. Um, yeah, the Capitol, the Navy Yard, a couple others, uh, the Israeli aircraft industry, um, the Officers Club, whatever. There were enough that they were able to kind of look and see the signatures of these bombs that were all the same and say, oh my God, we're looking for one group here. Right, because they, they operated under a bunch of different names. When I, I mentioned the communiques earlier, I mean, Red Guerrilla, Red Guerrilla Resistance, the Armed Resistance Unit, and so the FBI and everybody else thought, oh, there are a bunch of these groups out there. And it was actually quite clever on the part of May 19th um, because it sort of gave the illusion, it, 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 well, it threw the FBI off, but it also gave the illusion that they, they, there was some bigger struggle underway and that it was a sort of a, a, force, um, a force multiplier. But yeah, it was, it was um, you know, the FBI um, bomb technicians who figured out that there were basically two bomb makers. And again, this is one of the things I had to learn about uh, when, when, when researching the book, you know. How do you make a bomb? How do you? How would you tell? How can you tell that that what what that signature is? Right. Um, but they they were um, they were they were <laughs> the other thing I point out they were effective in the sense they they didn't blow themselves up. I mean, provisional IRA, Willie Morales, lots of other terrorists wind up dead. Well, the weathermen, right? I mean, that was the the weather underground, right? Blowing the, the townhouse, the townhouse, yeah. With the with the bomb meant for the um, NCO dance at, at uh, Fort Dix, um, but just it, if I could still go back to the to the um, the sort of sort of second part of the book. So the, the they, they decide after the Brinks robbery that this this just wasn't the right way to go, and for some of the reasons you said, um, they needed to have their own organization. 
and they they created well they had a variety of front groups that was part of this so there was a, just a little bit about the the, the structure uh, there was an inner circle of people who I write about but May 19th was also an above ground organization and like many revolutionary left groups had front organizations, the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, which was a early version of Antifa in many ways. They, they'd, they'd confront um, Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis and get in their face and fight with them and, and stuff like that. Um, they had this a thing, they had a whole bunch of uh, front groups devoted to, you know, Namibia and raising funds for, um, you know, African insurgencies. They had this library in Brooklyn. So they, and they use these as, as ways to try to, you know, bring in, you know, attract supporters. And there were probably a few hundred people um, in these above ground uh, front groups. And I don't think many of them or maybe not even any knew about the real underground right. activity that was going on. So, you know, people out there who are members of the John Brown anti-Klan committee, I get it. I'm, this book doesn't say that you're a terrorist. Well, I, mean, I was reading it going, why isn't there a John Brown anti-Klan group today that I could join, right? I mean, that what's wrong with, you know, going... I mean, that that to me is exactly what you're talking about, right? These ideas that um, these above-ground groups that have more legitimacy than... But are just one little teeny step away from being a militant, blow-something-up group. Like you said, Antifa a little bit more violent than perhaps just kind of marching against the clan right right um and it's it, it's it's um they also use these groups as sort of uh as a way to spot new talent i mean they didn't bring in that many people but you know people who are in the front groups who are displaying the right uh qualities um might be kind of brought in closer to the action but um you know 83 84 and once the arrests started, um, a lot of the, the front groups sort of, you know, sort of dissipated. We had some woven over here. Yes. <laughs> we, don't, we don't really want to be yeah. associated with that. And um, you know, the, the, the first big bust was in, um, was in New Jersey, uh, in Cherry Hill. And it was totally by luck, luck from my point of view, um, that, they got, that they got caught. And that was... Um, so uh, Susan Rosenberg and um, Tim Blunk were arrested. Um, they were checking. They were loading weapons or, or taking weapons and dynamite out of one of their storage lockers, and it was just a, a weird confluence of, of circumstances that you know some night manager wound up calling the police, um, and that that obviously scared the group. Um, Susan Rosenberg, a fascinating. Uh, character in her, her own right um, received a presidential pardon from Bill Clinton um, as did um, as did uh, Linda Sue Evans another member of the group um, and I should just I'm getting forward I'm getting ahead well, no, of the story. I mean, and we're going to let people read this so they can get the story themselves and I think I yeah. want to actually get to that end point because now now we're looking at 30 plus years since these people were convicted you talk about during the Clinton years, that was a decade or so after some had been convicted. Some of the ones got some clemency, got pardons who weren't necessarily the ringleaders. 
But even those who were kind of put in prison for decades are now starting to see their paroles up. I think right. the, 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 the one, there's a 2020 parole uh, hearing for one of the worst of the worst who got denied in 16 and died in 18. There's one coming up. So you can actually follow along. What's cool about this is, yes, it's history. But right now we're starting to see where, fortunately, some of them are passing away because they're in their 70s, they're getting cancer, other things like that. But there are now contemporary parole hearings for some of the women that were involved in this. Absolutely. Um, and Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, um, commuted uh, Judy Clark. She was um, convicted in, in connection with the, the Brinks robbery. Um, he uh, commuted her sentence, which, me which meant she was serving three consecutive 25-year-to-life uh, secondary murder. Um, and commuting her sentence allowed her to be considered for parole. She was turned down, and then it was only this year, it was this, this April, that she, um, she got paroled, which, needless to say, caused uh, quite a bit of consternation. She was a... Um, she was a, a, a bit of a, um, a celebrity. Um, then there were a bunch of Hollywood types. Steve Buscemi. I'm a big fan of Steve Buscemi, but maybe his political judgment isn't always as acute as it might be. Kevin Klein, Glenn Close. They were all very involved in trying to spring her. And the argument was, that, you know, she'd become a model citizen. She'd returned to her Jewish faith. She had done all kinds of good stuff with with fellow prisoners. Um, you know, I leave it to the reader to decide ultimately whether this, <laughs> whether that was a uh, a wise decision uh, to to partner. But she was in prison for more than thirty five years. And she's a little old lady by the time, basically. She, she, she's a yeah. little old lady. Um, but another one of the Brinks uh, conspirators, tangentially involved with sort of an ad hoc member of May nineteenth, named David Gilbert, um, who's married to uh, Kathy Boudin. Forgive me if I'm getting into this these weeds, but it's again one of these weird connections. Um, Chesa Boudin was recently elected; their son was recently elected uh, district attorney in San Francisco, which is interesting, and so that stirred some of this up. And they were actually raised when the parents were in prison. They were he was raised by Bill Ayers um, and um, Bill Ayers and his wife uh, Bernadine Dorn. So, which is kind of again. And that's the thing we were t we, again. We, we were chatting before this um, about the idea that Bill Ayers has been rehabilitated to a degree. I mean, yes, he came up during the Obama election when when you, Sarah Palin said, "You know, you're palling around with terrorists." Right. Even though he, you know, but Bill Ayers was on a board in Chicago, his board of education in Chicago. And again, we joked that if his name was Muhammad Ayers or, or whatever, <laughs> right. there's no way in hell. And of course, if if Judy, um, you know, was a you know a member of Al Qaeda. Even after 30 years, she would not have been paroled. Right. But she's a little old white woman. Bill Ayers is a upper middle class white guy who was a, not perf he's a professor and Bill Ayers right. and all this stuff. I mean, I'm not trying to get into a double standard idea. I'm trying to say that you know we have a very different perspective of some of these people. And certainly, even looking at people like the Shakur group, is you look at kind of what African Americans were dealing with in the 60s and 70s. Um, you understand a little bit if you're not a New Jersey State Trooper understand a little bit about what was going on during that time and so you can be a little bit more pro her rehabilitation if you want to use that word than you would be otherwise yeah and and i don't think there's 
any question about whether um, a BLA convicted BLA member was going to get a presidential pardon. I mean, some of some have actually been paroled, but uh, there's no question that um, the fact that they were black and 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 extremely violent um, made it much more difficult uh, to get their to get their release. And we were definitely treated. There there there, there were no celebrities supporting. Um, Matula Shakur, mm-hmm. for example, there was no Steve Buscemi, you know, or Common, or somebody, you know, singing odes to to, to him. Um, I, I I think that you know when people read this book, one of the important things to remember, I think, is you lay this out in the very beginning, is that this is not just a snapshot of American history, you know, during the 1960s and 70s, and, and you do the context is great to have. But I think that what's great about bringing it all the way up into the present day to start thinking about how today that we are reacting to this, like, you know, Common and all the others that are speaking out for these, is that it does matter more. It's not just a historical story that in the broader American history, this matters a lot. Yeah, it it one of the things I tried to do is um, and it may be a little presumptuous of me, but, you know, kind of re- recover our own past um, and. I think historians are doing an increasingly good job of integrating terrorism into American history. I mean, for example, Beverly Gage at um, at, at Yale did a wonderful book. You may have had her on the on the podcast. If not, maybe uh, you should. Uh, it's called "The Day Wall Street Exploded" about an anarchist bombing outside the the Morgan Bank in the 1920s. Um, and she and and uh, Kathleen Ballou at uh, at uh, the University of Chicago, um, did a fantastic book on the extreme right called Bringing the War Home, which traces a trajectory from the early 1970s of um, white supremacy um, through the uh, Oklahoma City bombing. So I think there's a sense like, yes, there is a past there. And as we talked about at the beginning, it's not just episodic. This is woven into our fabric. And it it erupts periodically. There are waves, certainly, but um, this is not some alien thing. Um, you know, to the extent that we have this sort of consensus view of history that you know it's all progress, everything's getting better. Um, we we resolve our our disagreements peacefully. Well, that's obviously not the case. Yeah, I mean that's not the case from the last several months. You got right. Antifa, you've got Charlottesville, you've got you know where there are people being killed. Because yes. of political persuasion, and you know that's that's just not even they didn't even kill anybody, right? I mean, as far as their organization itself didn't, you know, there's another step in kind of this continuum of U.S. history. Absolutely, and you know, I, obviously, you know, the extreme left in the United States, such as it, it, it such as it is, um, I, I I don't think is going to engage in the kind of terrorism that the women of May 19th or the Black Liberation Army or the FALN did. I mean, I, I personally think that the, the threats on the extreme violent right, I mean, and they've proved it, as you've said, by things like Charlottesville or, um, or Charleston. But I think, I think there, 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 there are lessons to be drawn. And, um, you, you know, just as, as, as one, and, and one, I think, is um, the importance of, uh, when we're talking about terrorism, the importance of the group the group dynamics, these were people who all knew each other beforehand. It's sort of a group of guys, like the Mark, Mark Sageman notion, but basically operating and not defecting and not 
giving up because doing so would mean abandoning the group right. and abandoning the comrades. And the role of ideology, which was extremely important, it's not just window dressing uh, for these people or for, for um, lots of terrorists. Yeah, I mean, these are true believers. You know, they, Absolutely. Uh, unlike what we kind of assume are the majority of terrorists were Islam or radical jihadism is the true belief. In this case, the left-wing ideals of you know, Che Guevara you know, versus, you know, the Quran uh, or Mao. Uh, and they're just as vehement. They're just as hardcore, uh, just looking in a very different direction. Absolutely. And they're willing to give up everything. They're willing to, 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 to die or, I mean, the, the options uh, for, for, for many terrorists, die or spend the rest of your life in prison. Right. These people were willing, were willing to do that. The book it's called Tonight We Bomb the U.S. Capitol, the explosive story of M19, America's first female terrorist group. Bill, thank you so much for coming and talking about this. We could have talked for two hours about this or more, but I want to actually leave some of the book for them to read because <laughs> if you don't know the story or even if you, you do a little bit, um, this is one of those, again, historical accounts that to me comes out of left field to where it's a story that should just be just taught in history, um, and it hasn't been. Uh, so I, it's definitely worth grabbing. Um, always a wonderful time when I get surprised by something. So I appreciate that. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Vince, thanks very much. This has been great. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.